I see we have a, a few visitors, and so we're, we're so glad that you're here. We do preach through books of the Bible here at Grace Bible Church. That's our practice. Um, and occasionally we'll have a topical message, but that's kind of our purpose, is to preach through books of the Bible so that we might have a better understanding of a particular book. Most recently, we just concluded nearly three years in the book of Hebrews. Uh, those that were here for those expositions uh, have told me that they understand that book much better than they ever did before. And so we've diverted to a couple of Old Testament uh, books and the Minor Prophets. We're in Nahum today, chapter 2, what you already heard read. And then our goal, and I think Lord willing, in about two, week, two to three weeks, we'll be beginning a long journey in the Gospel of John. So uh, you can even be reading through that and preparing your own heart for that exposition. The book of Nahum is it's a little challenge to read through. I mean, there's so much going on here, and it's an amazing book, though, when we understand the main message that God's judgment is an expression of God's severity to his enemies, but his goodness to his people, right? Because uh, the Assyrians were the enemies of God's people, and they had grown and become so huge. Nineveh was the strongest city in the world at this time. And so it's a great picture of the justice of God and his mercy to his people, which we still believe and hold to today, right? And so it's important that we understand that. Back in World War I, there was a German fighter pilot by the name of Manfred von Rinchhofen. You may not know that name, but uh, you might know him more as the Red Baron. Uh, because he flew that distinctive red German Fokker aircraft. He shot down more combat planes than any other fighter pilot in World War I. Eighty successful air combat victories. In April 1918, he began chasing a Canadian plane that was trying to escape a battle. And as the Red Baron pursued his prey, he, he dove too low into enemy lines. And, and he also missed a Canadian pilot that ended up behind him on his tail. And the Red Baron came to his end. Why? Because he made the mistake of pursuing that plane too long, too far, too low into enemy territory. Well, Assyria, this wicked nation, uh, like the Red Baron, has had many victories. Many battles have been won. They plundered the, the treasuries of all the neighboring countries so that they had all of this wealth. We even talked about this, this incredible city that had walls 100 feet high, so wide that three chariots could race around the top of it, something like six miles long. I, I think in the email I sent a diagram of the city. It's not perfectly round, but um, you know, just a large city. But they would come to a complete end. And really what the prophet is doing, he's prophesying what will happen, but as we're reading it, it's, it's almost like he's, he's, he's watching it live and writing it down, right? I mean, look at some of these verses. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance are like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. You know, the, this kind of terminology is as though he's watching it live, but God has given him this before the events actually happened. Of course, we know that it was 612 B.C. 
When the destruction happened, some believe he perhaps received the prophecy just months before it happened. It could have been a week. (laughs) Well, we don't know. But it also could have been sometime over the last 30 to 40 years because we don't have any time markers. In fact, Nahum, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. That's all we know about him. Right? We don't, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. It's as though he introduces himself, his credentials as it were. That's how the prophets did it. They would give the credentials, and then he fades in the background. And it's all about the destruction of the enemies of God. How does this apply to us today? Why dust off the dust on an Old Testament prophecy from 2,600 years ago? you might ask. Well, Nineveh was a capital and an aggressive superpower. And it was a threat and a danger to the very people of God that sought to worship the one true God and to worship Him as He has instructed. And we too have superpowers around the world that hate the people of God. Look in North Korea. Does Kim Jong-un say, oh, let's, let's protect religious freedom and all of that? No, Christians are underground. It's outlawed in all the other countries that can be named where the church is being persecuted. It's being oppressed, as it were. And like Judah, we can see all of this unchecked wickedness all around us and ask the question, Lord, are you, are you paying attention? Do you see what's happening to all of this and what's happening to us? Has, has God become indifferent? Well, Judah had felt the same way. They were being oppressed. And Nahum writes to encourage God's people. God is on the throne. Nothing happens by accident. He is sovereign. Our time frame is not always God's time frame. Of course, we know Christ as the ultimate divine warrior, right? You know, the, the first eight verses painted a picture of, of Yahweh as the divine warrior. And we just read in Revelation 19, right? Where it says there, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and he that sat on it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Not only did he wage war against Satan himself, but he wipes our wickedness away as he died on the cross for our sins as our substitute and as our Savior. So, um, the text has already been read. Let me uh, just recap chapter 1 briefly. Verses 2 to 8 is a victory hymn dedicated to the divine warrior. We saw something of his person. He's a God of vengeance. We'll talk more about that. His power, but it's also his provision of mercy. Verse 7 and 8 could be thought of as the main message of chapter 1. The Lord is good. We just sang, a good and gracious king. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those that take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness. That's the main message, right? The Lord is good to His people, but the enemies will be taken care of in a divine way. So let's pray and we'll jump into our text. Father, we do thank you so much for your word, which is inspired. It is God-breathed. We thank you that we can trust it. We don't have to question it. Lord, we, th- we just pray that you would give us understanding, that we would 
Remember that you are a good and gracious king to your people all the time. You are the divine protector. You are the one that will execute judgment on the enemies of the people of God. We thank you for the institution of the local church by which we can come week by week as the psalmist did in Psalm 73, until I came into the house of the Lord, then I perceived their end. In other words, to have to look at things that's going on in the world and even in our culture through the, a biblical lens. And we know that you do that through the preached word, the word read, the word sang, and the fellowship of the saints. So Lord, have your way, even this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, we're going to look at this under three points, all of chapter 2. We're going to run right through it. The first is, God will scatter his enemies, but restore his people. That's the first two verses. The next point is the complete utter destruction of Nineveh. That's verse 3 to 10. And the last point, and you might have picked up on it, is, is Nahum's lion taunt to Nineveh, where there's some sanctified sarcasm that's there. So first of all, verse, the first two verses, God will scatter his enemies and restore his people. God's purposes will be fulfilled against Nineveh. Verses 1 to 5 sort of kind of go back and forth and intermingle accounts of an attack, but also a defense, and it's just intermingled there. Verse 1 is directed to Nineveh. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, and summons all of your strength. It's really a, a, mock, a mock to them. It's man the fortress, watch the road, summon your strength. It's, it's Assyria might say, ha, 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 are you kidding? We're the greatest city in the world, and we're always ready for an attack. Look at our walls, after all. Our many towers that have watchmen. Poets, so you can almost picture that here, even this, this verse here, is, 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 is really just a, a mocking of Nineveh. God will humble such pride, right? He's, you know, it's one thing you can be sure of. God will humble the pride of man, the pride of a city, the pride of any nation, whatever it may be. God will humble because he is the one to be exalted. Back in 1912, there was a famous ship that was built. Um, nothing like it had been made. It's made in voyage from Liverpool, England, to cross the Atlantic and to come to New York. And on coming aboard, a passenger commented, the Titanic looks unsinkable. And as if you've watched the movie or whatever, but uh, there's an account of uh, that a, uh, one of the designers um, mocked and said, God himself could not sink this ship. And of course, you know the rest of the story, right? God himself cannot sink this ship. And, and what happened? How did it sink? Well, you know the story. It's, it's a warning that an attacker is advancing. This is the sovereign Lord advancing to you, Nineveh. But you dismiss it and you say, aha, what, what can he do to us? God will humble that. And so just as Titanic's sinking was a failure to heed the warnings of icebergs, so too Nineveh's demise would be a failure to heed the warnings of Yahweh. The way to escape judgment 
is to obey the word of the Lord. We need preachers like Nahum even today, don't we? We need preachers that will preach the truth, that will not only encourage, but, but give warnings to going astray. We need preachers that don't compromise, that stays true to the word of God. That, that, that don't just tell stories, but they're expounding the word of God and explaining that we might understand and to warn of the coming judgment. You young people, are you prepared to stand before a holy God? Not just the young people. Are all of us prepared to stand before a holy God to give an account to Him? We will all stand before God. But those who are in Christ are covered with the blood of Christ that we can come and claim that Jesus is mine. He paid for my sins on the cross his righteousness is now imputed to my broken, weak. I break the law. We're going through our catechism. We're on the Tenth Commandment. We break the law of God all the time. But His righteousness is imputed to us so that when we stand before a holy God, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that glorious? That's beautiful. Oh, to stand before Him apart from having that righteousness? What are you going to do? Fumble through? The suitcases of your good works. But, 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 but God, I volunteered at the rescue mission. I fed the poor. I did all of this. But I didn't trust your son. Away from me. I never knew you. Those are what would echo in the ears of the damned. An eternal punishment forever and ever and ever and ever. I never knew you. I thought I knew you. I was doing all of these good deeds. But I didn't trust in Christ alone. You see, the good deeds that we do and the feeding of the poor, whatever it is, those are all good things, but we don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it because we've been blessed and saved by Christ. Although Assyria was a means of chastisement for his people, you see in Isaiah 10 and in chapter 19, the rod of his anger went too far. They did not stop. They continued to grow. Verse 2. Yahweh will restore the majesty of his people. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The Lord will restore. Remember, we just finished the book of Joel. You remember that promise? The Lord will restore the years the locusts had eaten. And we just, we camped on that. And there made several applications about that. And here the promise is also made. It's a salvation oracle, as it were. Judah was experiencing suffering due to enemy occupation and warfare. But God's blessings would come and restore. So when it says Jacob, perhaps that's a reference to Judah. Of course, the reference to uh, Israel is that the northern kingdom had already been invaded and, and they have already gone to captivity. But one thing is sure, Nahum offers hope to God's people in the midst of suffering, in the midst of discouragement, restoring and changing them from one glory to another. As it says, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Christians will see the ultimate fulfillment when we see Jesus face to face. 1 John 3.2, because we shall see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself. The second part of the verse, even though devastators had destroyed them, 
plundered them, laid them to waste. Isaiah 24, 1, Behold, the Lord lays the earth to waste and devastates it and distorts the surface and scatters the inhabitants. So, God will restore his people. He will not be mocked. Our second point, look at this complete utter destruction here in verses 3 to 10. But really what you have here in verses 3 to 7 is the demise of Nineveh. Nineveh sees so clearly, the vision is vividly portrayed of the confusion and the horror that took place in Nineveh. In verse 10, it even says, She is emptied, yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting, knees are knocking, and also anguish in the whole body and all their faces have grown pale. Really, that's the end of that. Knees knocking, petrified, because Yahweh has come, as it were. Now, of course, he used the other nations, Babylon and etc. But, but this is the idea. God is executing judgment on Nineveh for her wicked deeds. It's like Nahum's perched on one of those 14 towers around the city uh, that, that we told you about, and, uh, and it just is witnessing it all and just writing it down. James Montgomery Boyce says in his excellent commentary, but in the year 612, the doom of the city arrived, combined with the armies of the Babylonians and the Scythians, marched up the left bank of the Tigris River and surrounded the city. It happened in early spring at the time of the annual rainfall, since the rains were especially heavy that year. The Tigris and other rivers flooded and apparently washed away a portion of the walls, leaving a breach for the armies. To enter the city. Verse 3, the shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The Babylonians actually were known for wearing red and even in battle. But it could also mean uh, be a reference to uh, the spilt blood that would have been there. The army and his vision, or sorry, yeah, the army is both cavalry and infantry. One historian gives this account, so great was the multitude of those that were slain that the flowing streams mingled with their blood changed its color for a considerable distance. So when you would look onto this, you would just see rivers of blood. Now remember, this is to a people that were so brutal, the brutality of the Assyrians, we've, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, where, where they would take their enemies and fillet their human skin and use it as wallpaper, especially around the doors, where they would stack the skulls of all their enemies around the gates so that you, as a passerby, would not dare mess with that city. And now the tables are reversed. There's, as it were, rivers of blood devastating judgment had come upon them. Look at the verse 4. You have two chiastic lines here. That The chariots race madly in the street. They rush wildly in the squares. They, the appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. It's an incredible scene that you have here. One of confusion, one of chaos, one of the, the, now the, 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 these um, enemies of Nineveh marched right in and they were, they were completely unprepared. Verse 5, you get these short, hard-hitting phrases. 
He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall. And the mantelet is set up. So you have these short phrases. And we don't know, who is he? Is that the king of uh, Assyria? The commander of the attacking army? Is it a reference to God? Uh, who does they mean? And, and again, his, his prophecy is often classic ambiguity, right? So we can't really answer those questions. There's three ways to neutralize a city in ancient warfare that had a wall around it. You'd either build a ramp to go over the wall, or you would ram a hole through the wall, or you would tunnel underneath the wall. And in verse 6, you have two events being recorded, and just very, very briefly. The river gates opened and the palace melts. Look at verse 6. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved, my New American Standard says, or is melting, that's the idea. Um, Just think of that. Nine words in the original Hebrew that describe the destruction of such a mighty city as Nineveh. The strongest city in the world is overthrown and the description is a mere nine words. That's what Yahweh can do. The New English, uh, the net net version, New English translation, says uh, the royal palace is deluged and dissolves. Historical accounts of this fall of Nineveh tell us that the city was conquered by diverting the waters from these flooded rivers and letting the water go along the base of the wall so it would be weakened. And the excessive rains that year only assisted in that. I'm curious if Jesus had perhaps this event in mind as he concludes the best sermon ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount. You're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It describes righteous living, holy living, often contrasting the broad way to the narrow way and all of that. But at the conclusion, actually just turn with me to Matthew. Matthew 7. In verses 24 to 27. This is our Savior's conclusion to this sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Just to think someday we'll be able to ask Jesus that in an eternity. Were you thinking of Nahum? <laughs> anyway, interesting thought. You know, when you build a house, you build a house in good weather. And you build it so that it will withstand bad weather, poor weather, right? And you think of just an illustration I read this week of in the year 2010 and 2011, there were two huge earthquakes that struck two island nations. In 2010, most of us remember in Haiti, there was 160,000 deaths. That's just a huge amount of people. 
However, in 2011, a much larger quake struck, resulting in a tsunami that killed under 20,000 souls in Japan, and that was a much stronger one. The point here is that even though the, even though the Japanese earthquake was so much larger and in size, it resulted in a lot less deaths. Why is that? Due to better preparation, tighter building codes, and that type of thing. The Haitians, being a poorer nation, had lax building codes, and so their buildings ultimately became instruments of death as they would collapse on the people in the midst of an earthquake. A well-built building provides a shelter in a storm. Poorly built buildings will kill its occupants. Assyria placed its hope in worldly power and in wealth and in their own glory. Wait, did I say Assyria? I think I just described America, right? America does the same exact thing. Putting our hope in our armed forces and our wealth and the Federal Reserve and the printing machine that keeps printing $100 bills over and over and over that we're never going to pay off. America can fall just as quickly and completely as Assyria at any given time. There could come a time where God's patience, and he says, I've had enough. I'm going to protect my people, but this nation is going to collapse, and it's going to fall because of their utter wickedness, their sexual perversion, the slaughter of the unborn, and his patience. He's long-suffering, but his patience sometime is going to snap in a righteous indignation of judgment to us. May the Lord grant revival and repentance in our land once again, even as those great days, the first and second great awakening and the revivals of old. That can, Do you really believe God could do that? He could breathe by a spirit and just convert many people. But he uses means. He doesn't just, you know, boom, this whole state's converted, right? It doesn't work like that. What does he do? Well, looking back in chapter 1 of verse 15, behold on the mountains of the feet of him who bring good news. He uses instruments. He uses preachers. He uses the example of our faithful lives. He uses means. And so that's a clarion call to the church to purify herself and to be faithful at preaching the word of God. Verse 7 is a a very difficult verse uh, structurally. There's 12 different translations of it. I don't want to go into it too much. But look at verse 7 here. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. The first three words in the Hebrew are all verbs. But the first is masculine and the second are feminine. There's all kinds of debate about it. But the consensus has arisen in recent years that the focus is on the destruction of the image of the defeated city's main deity. Um, The New English translation again, Nineveh is taken into exile. It is led away. Her slave girls moan like the doves while they beat their breasts. Um, Longman in his commentary says this verse describes the destruction and desecration of the goddess called beauty, what is probably Asher, the Assyrian goddess of love. And so you have this picture here in the ancient Near East that as a, a, a city was being conquered, the deities would be carried out as well. Even the Philistines did this, remember, in the beginning of 1 Samuel. 
right? They, when they captured the ark and took it back to them, and you know the rest of the story, you're messing with God. It's holiness there, the tablets of the law. But these girls uh, that are here, her handmaids are moaning. These aren't temple prostitutes, which are very common, um, even in New Testament times, early New Testament times. Um, but these were those that were wholly devoted to their God. And they moan and they pound their breasts. It's a manifestation of mourning as the deities are carried out. And so such silly idolatry, right? For these girls to be moaning, but, and then they become so devoted to, to these idols like these Assyrian girls, and we might be quick to point the finger at these girls, but there is a plethora of modern-day idols that our hearts like to run after, and I'm not talking about bowing down to things as much as in the mind and in the thought of going after these things, the inordinate desires or inordinate amounts of time spent on certain activities that ought not to be there. The Bible condemns idolatry. Paul develops it in the second half of Romans 1, right? We can, we can begin to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Second sub-point, verses 8-10, to 10, all the wealth in the world cannot deliver Assyria. Maybe in verse 8, let's read it. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. Nahum describes all the riches that they had accumulated because they'd plundered that from other uh, cities in their conquest. But now a sovereign God is draining it all. The people are fleeing. Uh, Even the thing stops, stop, but it's all being taken away and taken out of the city. Plunder, plunder. Nineveh was one of the most was the most wealthiest city in the world at that time, and no end of the treasure. There is no limit to the treasure. They had so much wealth. They thought that would deliver, and it was all taken away. Money can't save Nineveh. All the wealth in the world, and money can't save us either. Speaking of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then you have this unparalleled looting at verse 10. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting. Knees are knocking. Also anguish in the entire body. And all their faces grow pale. Hundreds of years of wealth that they've come, it's all drained away. They put their hope in that. There's a stifling fear and horror to those that observe the destruction Knees are knocking. Well, the last three verses, we have Nahum's lion taunt, really, and and a concluding comment here. Um, Let's read 11 to 13. Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of young lions? Where the lion and the lioness and the lion cub prowled? 
with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough of its cubs, killed enough for his lioness, filled their lyres with prey, and his dens with torn flesh. Nahum's using sanctified sarcasm here. It's meant to be insulting. It's um, the whole rhetorical questions there that you see there. The where is the den of the lions? Where the lion and the lioness and all of that? It's rhetorical questions. The sanctuary for conquered kings and proud queens and noble offerings, but there was no power to it. Verse 12, you see the inhumanity of Nineveh was strong and powerful as a provision uh, for people. They were savage and violent and greed. They filled their caves with all of the plunder, and it's all destroyed. Amos 3.12 says, Thus says the Lord, Just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away. Job 38, 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens and they lie awake and wait in their lyre? And then Nineveh just completely cut off from her strength. Verse 13, these uh, four statements, as it were. He says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. So the whole idea of I am against you, that's, you don't, you don't want God to be against you, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? But what a terrible thing it is when God says, I am against you. So these four closely related phrases are speaking of the disaster that awaits them. A couple points of conclusion as we wrap up here. God's judgment and purposes will be fulfilled in his history. God's people will be restored. However much they've suffered, God's enemies will be destroyed, and God's word will be vindicated. Secondly, although Nineveh was destroyed, other enemy nations would continue to rise up against Israel. That's really their whole history, right? There was always enemies. The God-haters, as it were, to the covenant nation, of Yahweh. But there's a greater enemy that we battle today. It's our sinful disposition. It's our wicked hearts that incline us to do sinful acts. You see, when Adam fell in the garden, death spread to all men, it says clearly in Romans chapter 5. It spread worse than a coronavirus, okay? It's absolutely spread to all men. But God, in his infinite wisdom and plan, sent a second Adam, didn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ, that fulfilled everything that Adam failed in, so that all that would trust in him would be saved. Our Lord Jesus, even as a divine warrior we saw in Revelation 19, went willingly to the cross in his humanity, in his humiliation, and took the Father's wrath in his own body. It was there that divine justice was executed and that mercy comes to us as a result. 
Jesus would take all of our sin upon himself, satisfying God's perfect justice. Deliverance is to be found in the cross of Christ. My friends, you've got to look to Christ if you want to be saved. The cross is your shelter. It's the place of safety. It's the place of refuge. Romans 3.26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Isn't that a paradox of a statement? Just, and that he pays, he, he executes judgment on sin, but also the justifier, right? That those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that is good news. It's the unmerited mercy that we receive. But if you've gone your own way, you say, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. You, you seek after your own corrupt devices, you embrace all the isms that are out there, the cults and all of that, uh, then justice demands your eternal condemnation. And we would wish that upon no one, even our greatest enemy, to think of an eternity that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Christopher Love, a Puritan in his sermons on heaven and hell, described a mountain of sand. And if a bird was to take one grain, fly across the Atlantic to the U.S. and drop it off and go back and into this mountain of sand, billions of grains of sand, it would only be the first season of eternity in hell an amazing thing. See, the, the terrible thing about eternal judgment is that it's, it, it's not like paying a sentence, right? You know, a hundred-year sentence, or a thousand-year sentence, or a million-year sentence. In the billionth year, there's still not going to be an any closer to the end of it. And that's why I say we would not wish it upon anyone. Christ is a compassionate Savior. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He has paid it all. He's worthy of our adoration and praise. As you reflect on this mercy, if you're a Christian that has been given to you, how do you respond to others when they sin against you? When you're at a Walmart, and even though you're just pushing your cart, paying attention, you're cut off three times by other carts in the the span of ten minutes. Or you're cut off on the freeway. Or, providentially, you're in a doctor's office for 90 minutes in a reception area. How do you respond? Well, we're not to pay back evil for evil, right? Paul develops that in Romans chapter 12. Maybe you're the type that says, ah, I'll get revenge, right? Um, I'll go cut off somebody else or whatever. You know, you're cut off and you speed up, so you want to cut that guy off. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Some might produce, give, give revenge by the silent treatment. I'll make him or her suffer. This too is wrong. In fact, we're called to do the opposite, to positively show mercy. It goes on in Romans 12, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your response to evil done to you must be seasoned with mercy. That we're called to love one another. 
to bear each other's burdens. Oh, that we would learn these lessons, that we would be those that glorify God in all things. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the men that bled and died to preserve this word. We thank you for the 66 books of the Holy Scriptures. Forgive us for neglecting this word, which is your message to us, your love letter in a sense, to believers. Lord, we also thank you even for this picture of uh, your faithfulness to execute judgment on your enemies and your goodness to your people. You indeed are a good and gracious king. We thank you for sending your own son, Jesus, to die for ruined sinners. Lord, we exalt in Christ. We boast in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for this time that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.